title of my sermon is The Message of John the Baptist. In 1977, William Aitchison burned a cross on the lawn of Philip and Barbara Butler, who were African Americans, or I guess they are African Americans. Um, Aitchison was a member of the Ku Klux Klan, and this type of hatred came natural to him at the time. After being caught, he was sentenced to 90 days in jail. Forty years later, William Atchison is a changed individual, truly a changed individual. He now goes by Reverend William Atchison because he became a Catholic priest. A long, um, for a long time, he couldn't bring himself to confront the butlers and apologize to them and ask them for forgiveness. But then the events in uh, Charlottesville, South Carolina, took place where a white nationalist rally was held, and he felt convicted, and he wrote them a letter. Uh, let's see. He told them that he was blinded by hate and ignorance. He continues, I believe now that all people can live together in peace regardless of race. I know, also know that the symbol of the most enduring love the world has ever known must never be used as a weapon of terror. Its use against you was a despicable act. I seriously regret the suffering it caused you. To repent, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is defined as turning from sin and dedicating oneself to the amendment of one's life. William Atchison, I believe, not only did he apologize and, and verbally ask for forgiveness, he had the physical evidence of change. You know, he had the evidence of that repentance that took place. This morning, as we talk about repentance, we're going to take a look and learn a little bit about how we can make changes in our lives that will not only glorify God, but that will also make us better people. But before we do, let's take a moment to go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I praise you and I thank you for the chance you've given us to gather in your name. Bless me as I declare your word and touch each and every one of us as we do our best to partake in your word today and take something home. In your name, amen. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 3. If not, look under your seats or in front of you. And in theory, there's a Bible so today we're going to talk about John the Baptist. John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 1, we read about how Gabriel the angel came to Zacharias and told him, um, Zacharias was a priest, that his wife Elizabeth was going to have a child. This took place while Zacharias was performing his priestly duties within the temple. So he was in the temple doing what he had to do. He was in the holiest of holy places. The angel came to him. But his reaction was not what you might expect. He doubted the angel. He said, there is absolutely no way that my elderly wife and myself are going to have a child. The angel didn't like this. Gabriel was like, I don't think so. You're not going to talk back to me. I wish my children, you know, reacted this way sometimes. But Zacharias didn't believe it. And as a result, the angel Gabriel got a little upset with him and decided that Zacharias was not going to have the ability to speak until after John was born, which is what took place. Of course, during this period of time, the nine months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Mary visited with her, her distant cousin, and when she was in uh, the presence of Elizabeth, and John for that matter, John within the stomach of Elizabeth leaped for joy, according to Luke, um, at the presence of the yet-to-be-born Messiah. In the end of Luke chapter 1, we learn that there was some doubt about John's name after he was born, since no one within John's family was named John. Zacharias asked for a writing tablet, settled the matter once and for all, and wrote on the tablet, his name is John. At this moment, he was able to speak again. He gave the amazing prophecy, that, or song that's at the end of the first chapter of John, 
and, and, and you know, thing moves on. That's kind of how we got in. We get to uh, this point in Luke chapter 3, the beginning of Luke chapter 3. The last several weeks we've been going, we went through the second chapter of Luke with the birth of Christ and his interactions with the people at the temple. And now we're going to talk uh, about John the Baptist. So go ahead and, like I said, open your Bible to Luke chapter 3. Let's go ahead and look at the first two verses, and we're going to do our best to gain a context uh, for my uh, message this morning. Verse 1 and 2. Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of Etruria, and Ty- oh, I gotta say it right, Trachonis, and Lysenus was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So I love context. I love it so much. And I have a map. Oh boy, am I pressing the right direction? I turned it off, didn't I? There's the map. It's hard to see. But I like maps too. So, Tiberius Caesar, of course, he's the Roman emperor. So the ruler of all the Roman world. He, he was so from the year 14 to 37 AD. Pontius Pilate, you heard of him before. He's a key figure in the trial of Jesus. He became Roman governor of Judea in the year 26 and ended his, uh, his reign in the year 36 A.D. Herod, the first Herod that's in reference here is actually Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, who will eventually, uh, once again, uh, he, he is a key individual in all of this, he will eventually have John the Baptist beheaded and was involved in the trial of Jesus. He ruled over the regions of Galilee, the area of Galilee, from 4 B.C. to 39 B.C. You kind of see Galilee there. Um, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee is right up on top. He ruled over the, the pretty much the stuff to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. His brother Philip, um, uh, who was also Herod, but Herod Philip uh, ruled over the area to the east of the of the Lake of Galilee, of the, of the Sea of Galilee. And the, again, those regions, Etruria, like I say, Etruria, Etruria, and Trachonis um, were east of the Jordan. In the same period of time, he ruled starting in 4 B.C. when his father died until 34 A.D. Uh, Philip was an interesting guy. that We heard about um, his brother, Herod Antipas, beheading John the Baptist. The reason he did so is because John didn't particularly care for Philip's relationship with, or no, with Herod's relationship with Philip's wife. Um, Herodias was actually Philip's niece whom he married until Herod Antipas decided that he wanted her as his own wife. So he took her from his brother... John didn't like this, which eventually led to John's execution. There's absolutely nothing more that we have here in the book of Luke in regards to Licinius. Um, all we know is that he ruled the area of Abilene, which is northwest of Damascus. So really what it is, is just below the area that Philip ruled over. Pontius Pilate, Herod Antipas, Philip, and Licinius ruled over the region that Herod the Great, the individual who had all the infant children killed in Bethlehem, that guy, that Herod, he ruled over everything. But the Romans didn't think that he had the, his children had the ability to continue his rule. So they broke things up, which is why we have so many different people in charge of this particular area. Ananias and Caiaphas were the high priests of this time. Ananias was the high priest from 4 to 15 A.D., at which point, in the year 15 A.D., the, the Romans once again didn't particularly care for him. So the Romans decided that in order to manipulate the Jewish people even more, they would choose the high priest, even though the high priest of Israel was meant to be from the line of Aaron. 
in the year 18, so several years later, they made Caiaphas, who was the son-in-law of Ananias, the high priest, and he served as high priest until 36 A.D. Again, the problem here was that even though the Romans didn't like Ananias, the Jewish people did. So the Jewish people pretty much um, would listen to Ananias more than Caiaphas. Either way, both individuals we hear quite a bit about in the story of Jesus' trial and eventual execution. Now, the end of chapter 2 tells us that John was the son, once again, of Zacharias. I already told you that. And that he was in the wilderness. And when, uh, at which point, word of the Lord came to him, telling him it was time to go. Which kind of brings us to where we're at today. If you look at the end of Luke chapter 1, you would read that John actually stayed, after his upbringing, he stayed in the Jordan area, the wilderness between the Sea of Galilee, along the Jordan River between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Um, And he would hang around this area until it was time for him to start serving the Lord, at which point um, we are at right at this moment. So, in studying Luke chapter 3, verse 3 to 14, I have four questions regarding the ministry of John the Baptist. So very simple, four questions, they're in your bulletin. Number one, what was John's message? And the answer to that question is John's message was baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 3 of Luke chapter 3. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Very basic. John preached all up and down the Jordan River. He moved up and down the Jordan River. This is significant because, again, most people believe that that was the area that Elijah spent the end of his life in, that particular region. So John the Baptist, who, again, is like an Elijah, is kind of how they word it in the prophecies pointing towards him um, coming as the predecessor to the Messiah, um, it was very significant that he was in this particular area. He wanted people to have a genuine change of heart. I mean, and again, this is important, a genuine change of heart. And that genuine change of heart would be illustrated by their actions, by what takes place after the change of heart. That started with baptism. None of this equalized salvation. That's very important to point out. They were not saved the way we are saved today. Jesus had not yet come yet. Jesus was still, uh, still hasn't started his ministry, he hadn't died on the cross, he hadn't risen from the grave. That's the bottom line. That's where we're at. John's job was to prepare the way for the Messiah. Thus, John's job was to prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah to come, for Jesus to arrive. John's baptism was one of complete water immersion. He dunked them, he, he put them under. And if they needed a little bit longer, he might have held them a little bit longer. The point here is that John, he didn't sprinkle, he, he didn't do any, he didn't do children, he dunked them. He dunked them, he pulled them out, and of course that's one of the reasons why we have the baptism we have today. The Greek word for repentance comes from the word metanoia, which has the meaning of a change of mind, as it appears to one who repents of a purpose he has formed of, or of something he has done. So to have a change of mind, and interestingly, the, uh, at least the beginning of the word metaphoria, or metanoia, um, is, is where we get our English word uh, metamorphosis from, at least a somewhat one. I'm, I'm stretching it a little bit, but it's a similar concept in Greek, is the idea of change, a complete change. The Greek word for forgiveness is the word aphasis, aphasis, which has the literal meaning of release from bondage or imprisonment, release from bondage or imprisonment, forgiveness or pardon of sins, uh, letting sin go, like letting them go, your sins go as if they had never been committed for a mission of the penalty. 
So again, the idea is that repentance and forgiveness of for forgiveness of sins. You're saying you're sorry, but your actions are proving your forgiveness. If that makes any sense. John was preaching at them to change their ways. He wasn't just preaching for them to say a couple words, and next thing you know they're set. He was telling them, if you're going to get baptized because of your repentance, I'm expecting you to, you know, pull your stuff together. I'm expecting you to walk the way you're meant to walk, in a, in, in kind of in accordance with the way of God. He wanted them to change their behavior, is really what I'm getting at here. Now for us, this is, I think it's very, uh, very similar um, thing here. This should be the response of all Christians because we have a complete picture of Jesus' salvation. The penalty for our sins have been removed. It's gone. As a result, this is, as a result of this, we change who we are. We change our behavior in order to emulate Christ. We don't change our behavior in order to obtain salvation. We change our behavior because of salvation. Very important principle. Keep your finger right here. And let's go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Keep your finger on Luke. We'll be back to Colossians to your, to your, uh, to your right. You know, after Acts, you have Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, then eventually you can get Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. If you're in the books of the Thessalonians, you're going too far. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 1 all the way down to verse, what do they say, 11. Colossians chapter 3, starting with verse 1. The apostle writes, Paul writes to the church in Thessalonians, not Thessalonica, the church in Colossae. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep speaking the things above, where Christ is seated, at, uh, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil passions and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Bottom line, we have a change in our life when we've accepted Jesus. And John is preaching this. He just didn't have the part about Christ in there yet. He was preaching, repent. Change who you are. And now that's the same thing I'm telling you. Because of Jesus, because of salvation, you can change who you are and make yourself into a new person. Christians need to base who they are, meaning who we are, on who they follow, meaning who Jesus is. Christians need to emulate Christ. We need to do what Jesus would do. We need to follow in the steps of Christ. Bottom line. Number two. Second question I have here, if it goes. Second question. Where does John's authority come from? John's authority comes from God and the Word of God. 
Look at the text once again, chapter 3 of Luke, verse 4, down to verse 6, and we're going to take a look at Luke's quote of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 to 5. So, verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight, and the rough road smoothed, and all flesh will see the salvation of God. Matthew and Mark also quote this uh, passage in reference to uh, John the Baptist. It's what we would call a messianic prophecy, uh, which is pointing to the one who's going to precede the Messiah. Uh, what, what, what Isaiah was in referencing to, the illustration Isaiah was using was this. When a ruler or someone important enters a kingdom, I mean, even today, even in the United States, if you ever saw, like, a, I love watching, I watch the West Wing and all those political shows, but even just watching, you know, the news and whatnot, you hear about different uh, meals that they have, what do they call them, banquets, and they have the uh, Prime Minister of Japan is visiting. Let's just say the White House is looking cleaner than normal. I mean, kind of the same thing like Tabula was just complaining about, you know, we're going to have the Super Bowl party. Our house is going to look much cleaner than normal. I mean, that's just the way it is. You're going to prepare for your, your honored guests. In the same way, um, well, that's what Isaiah is saying here. He's referencing how the person, how John the Baptist, again, he wasn't saying John, because John wasn't the one in Isaiah's head, but Isaiah understood that an individual was going to precede the Messiah and prepare the way for the Messiah. This individual was going to prepare the roads. When a ruler would enter into a foreign country... Most of the time, those roads that that ruler would be traveling would be prepared for the ruler. You know, we don't want that ruler bouncing around or having to go high or having to go real low. They would smooth things out in the same way that the White House would smooth things out for different um, people who were visiting. John the Baptist was metaphorically preparing for Jesus' ministry. His ministry was preparing for Jesus' ministry. In verse 2, Luke tells us that John's ministry began when the word of the Lord came to him, when the word of God came to John. So what I'm really getting here is that John's authority was not only biblical, because it's from the Bible, the prophecies of the Old Testament, points towards John the Baptist's coming, but it was also a direct authority from God, because God spoke to John the Baptist saying it was go time. Now the question I have, kind of a sub-question here, is where does the authority for Christians come from? Where does our authority come from? And that, the answer is still the same, from God and from God's Word. Jesus commanded us to go and preach the gospel to everyone. Um, John chapter 20, verse 21. Peace be with you. This is Christ speaking. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. We also have authority from God's word. You know, God's word gives us authority to go and tell other people about him. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, part of the armor of God passage it's, um, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, meaning your Bible. Christians have authority given to them by God through His Holy Scriptures. Are you ready to use the authority that God has given you? That's really the question here. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also the Greek, or also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. You have authority from God. God has given you authority. He has given it to you directly, and then for us it's given to us through His Word. 
Are you ready to use it? Number three, the third question regarding John the Baptist's ministry. Why should we heed John's message of repentance? Why should we heed? Why should we listen to John's message of repentance? We should listen to John's message of repentance because our works are hopeless. Our works are hopeless. Look at verse 7 down to verse 9 of our text of chapter 3. Verse 7 says, So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I, I don't think it would be a good way for me to begin every week when you guys walk in calling you a brood of vipers. Just my thought there. John wasn't messing around, though. John was, he was talking very specifically. I'm, I'm assuming, um, just from the text, that there were probably some people that were coming in and saying, well, I'm a one of Abraham's descendants. I'm okay, I don't, I don't need nothing. Or they thought maybe all I have to do is be baptized. I'll be dunked and I'll be set. But that's not what John's saying. There's more to a relationship with God, and of course now a relationship with Christ, than just being baptized and just being from the ancestry of, of uh, Abraham, meaning being Jewish. We are called to a higher standard. The reality is that John's baptism and the message of repentance cannot save these individuals. The only way that someone can truly repent, truly change their bad ways to turn and turn them towards good, is through grace and the grace of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and then not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We have been saved through the grace of God in our faith in the grace of God. As a result of that salvation, we serve God. That's essentially what John is saying. I mean, the verse that really stood out to me in this, in this text, the section of this text, is verse 8 in the part where John says, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What Jesus, what his death did for us was saved us from our sins. It saved us from the penalty that we had from our sins. And we needed that. Because on our own, our works are useless. Anything we do will never be good enough to earn salvation. Bottom line. So we needed someone who could do something that would be good enough for us to earn salvation. That one is, of course, Jesus in dying for us on the cross and rising from the grave. That's the bottom line there. But as now, as a result of that, as a result of the amazing grace that Jesus gave us on the cross... We are able to turn to Christ and say, Lord, use me how you see fit. Help me serve you. And that's what took place. James, Jesus' brother, has a lot to say about this. James chapter 2, verse 14 to 17 says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, Yet you, do not do, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is it? Even so, faith, 
If it has no works, it's dead, being by itself. And then, verse 26 of James chapter 2, James continues, he says, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, again, it is very important to emphasize that we cannot earn our salvation. There is nothing you can do that's going to make you somehow into the grace of God. You need to achieve that grace of God through believing in Jesus, bottom line. But because of, your, because of that salvation, because of the amazing thing that Jesus did, you can now serve Him, and you do so without thinking twice about it. The salvation you have in Jesus is what gives you the desire to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That's really the point I'm getting at here, which, of course, this leads me to my final question. What shall we do to bear fruits in keeping with repentance? What shall we do to bear fruits in keeping with repentance? And the answer is very simple. We should love other people. We should love others. You know, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, we should love other people. Love others. Now look at the end of my text, verse uh, 10 down to verse 14. And uh, John has several different examples of this. So verse 10, And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, What about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. To sum it up, John is saying, just love other people. Love them. We bear fruit and keep it with repentance by following Jesus' new commandment. John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35 Jesus tells us a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John then gives us, he gave us in, this, in our text here, he gave us three ways that we can love others and bear fruit and keep them with repentance. Three ways, first of all, by being generous. Be generous. A tunic was and is like a shirt. It was almost an undergarment. It was a shirt that they would wear. If you were well off, you would have more than one. And if you had more than one, you would wear both of them. You would wear two of these shirts. John is saying that if you have more than one, if you have more than what you need, who in the world are you not to give to the person who has need? You have everything provided for you. <coughs> this person over here needs something. You should give it to them, whether it's a shirt or whether it's food. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 17 says... One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good work. The second thing that John, the second way that John showed us that we can love others and bear fruit and keep them with repentance is by being honest. By being honest. Tax collectors were not particularly honest. They were not particularly cared for by the Jewish people either, mainly because they would take from the top. They would say, oh, yes, you only owe me $100, but I'm going to charge you $150 and pocket 50 bucks." That's what they would do, and this was not a particularly honest thing to do. John is telling the tax collectors to take only what was required of them by the law. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are His delight." Then finally, number three, and this is the number of the C or whatever, 
the, the difficult one here. Be content. Be content. Soldiers would demand money from people because they weren't content with their wages. They would falsely accuse someone if they did not pay up. They would do horrible things. John is telling them to be content with their pay. Contentment is something that many of us struggle with. To some extent, we can also point the finger at the tax collectors who were also not content with what they were getting paid. Proverbs 28, verse 25 says, An arrogant man stirs up strife, but he who trusts the Lord will prosper. And then, uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. I mean, what that's saying is, be content with what God has provided with you, because he's going to provide in one way or the other. Verse 6, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? Isn't that so very true? God is in charge. We are okay if we put our full trust in Him. We can bear fruits in keeping with repentance by loving others. We love others by being generous, honest, and content. Let me close up. John's message was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. His authority came from God and the Word of God. We should heed John's message of repentance because our works are useless, our works are hopeless. And then finally, to bear fruit and keep them with repentance, we should love other people. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do those who interact with you on a daily basis, do the people you love and care for, do they see the outward evidence of the inward change in your life? Do the people closest to you see the influence that Jesus has had in your life? That's the question. That's really the million-dollar question right now. That's it. Make it your goal to live your life for Jesus, emulating His actions. If you do this, you will be keeping, uh, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, which is what John asked us to do. Let me close in prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I praise you and I thank you now for the message of John the Baptist. The beautiful message of repentance, Father. It was a predictive message that he believed so heartedly, so wholeheartedly because he knew that you were coming. You were on your way. He had already met you when he was in his mother's womb and he leapt for joy. Lord, I ask that that reaction be the same for us. Allow us to leap for joy in the, the, in the presence of you. Allow us to leap for joy in the presence of the Messiah. And allow us to do whatever it takes to walk in your footsteps. Allow us to do what you would do, Lord. Uh, the question, what would Jesus do, oftentimes gets uh, laughed at because it becomes such a cliche. But Lord, it's very true. If we ask that question, if we, we, if we consider how you would respond in all circumstances of our lives, Lord, we would truly be able to know that we are living a life focused on you and you alone. So Lord, now I ask that you touch us as we prepare to depart. Allow us to remember this. Allow us to, to just have this settle upon our hearts. And allow us to know that you are an amazing God. In your wonderful name, amen.